0: open your Bibles to James chapter 3, James chapter 3. As you're turning there, we just finished the Gospel of Mark after a two-year study last week, and that gives me a little bit of um, freedom to address some things that I want us to look at here in the next few weeks, and while you're turning to James, let me give you a preview. We are going to study James 3 this morning, which I set out several weeks ago to uh, put into our hearts, and then... um, We're going to look at a couple of sermons, I think, on uh, regaining our understanding of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and then we're going to do a series called The Gospel Class, and The Gospel Class is going to be two or three uh, sermons just reminding ourselves what the gospel is and our evangelistic responsibility to take that to everyone that we can and everyone who will listen to us. Then I'm going to do a couple of minor prophets getting uh, toward um, the end of the year. And then uh, the, the, the big study next is after the first of the year, we're going to begin the book of Ephesians. So if you want to begin reading and getting a head start in that, I would encourage you to start reading the book of Ephesians. You can even memorize it. Try memorizing those first 14 verses, the longest sentence in the New Testament in the Greek. It'd be wonderful to do that. So before today, I want us to turn our attention to the pen of the half-brother of Jesus, and that is James. Interestingly enough, in his humility, he never identifies himself as the half-brother of Jesus. If that had been me, I would have likely been using that business card anywhere I could have, but not James. He just begins, James, a bondservant of Christ. When he gets to chapter 3, he isolates his practicality on an issue that I think is important for us in our day, in our uh, culture, as we're, we're looking around what's happening in our society. And Christians have a very common temptation with other believers, other unbelievers rather, to use our tongues in ways that don't bring glory and honor to the Savior. And so I want us to just listen to the half-brother of Jesus, James, this morning and let him direct our thoughts about the amazing power of the tongue. Let me read verses 1 through 12. Let not many of you, James chapter 3, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits in the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. They are so great and are driven by strong winds and are directed by a very small rudder rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From it, the same, from the same mouth, come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. In 1939, war broke out in Europe after Germany invaded Poland. This began World War II, and then in 1941... Japan attacked the U.S. Navy base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, bringing the United States into the eastern front of the war. The United States actually was entertaining theaters of war on, in the west and in the east. Japan began a, a systematic invasion of British, Dutch, and American colonies in the Pacific. And by their own admission... The Japanese were not going to surrender, quote, no matter what, end quote. Well, no matter what dissolved in 1945. The U.S. Forced, ju- forced Japan to surrender, utilizing the most feared weapon of war ever devised. On August 6, 1945, the airplane Enola Gay dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Three days later, on August 9th, a second atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Altogether, instantly about 120,000 people died and countless thousands died in the days, weeks, months, years, and decades that followed resulting from the bomb and its radiation. Japan immediately surrendered. The war in the East was over. And in the ensuing days and weeks and months and years and even decades following up to today, the most debated issue in discussions of warfare is the use of such massive military atomic force. The atom bomb, the atomic bomb, is believed to be the most dangerous and powerful force in the world. In fact, world summits are held multiple times a year's nuclear summits to make sure that this force is somehow kept in check. However, may I suggest to you this morning that there is a far more powerful force in the world and in your world than an atomic bomb, and it goes almost entirely unchecked. Not even an arsenal of nuclear weapons can come close to the life-changing, possibly destructive force of your tongue, of words, of speaking. Solomon says so. Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life History is a graveyard dug by the shovel of the tongue. Words have inestimable value. They have inestimable power. They have inestimable potential. And yet we can say without question that more damage and carnage have been done by words spoken than any other force in the world Not even the arsenal of nuclear weapons can compare to its life-changing influence. I don't know if you've thought about it, but you were all told a lie. You probably memorized the lie. You probably said the lie or sang the lie or chanted the lie. And the lie is this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. I've broken bones. I've, I've kept the suture industry in, in business growing up with cuts and I've had concussions and broke the orbit of my eye one time. I, 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 I've, I've been hurt. I don't feel the effects of, of those now. But if I let my mind wander back a week, a month, a year, a decade, all the way to my third grade encounter I had with a girl who made fun of me in front of some other kids. The sting of that moment still, still presses on my heart today. And I'm sure all of you can point back to things that people have said that have been damaging moments in your life or that have been encouraging Trajectory setting moments in your life as well. James, the half brother of Jesus, understood well the amazing power of the tongue. And this is a theme that he accents over and over in this book. He actually, in these 12 verses, pins the most direct encouragement and instruction about the tongue anywhere in the pages of Scripture. Remember the flow of James. I know it's a favorite book of of many of you. Chapter 1 talks about trials, and then temptations, and tempers, and then true religion. Chapter 2 talks about favoritism, and then climaxes on faith without works is dead. It speaks of how genuine faith produces fruit. The first application of that thought is is in chapter 3. There really should be no chapter marker or division between 2 and 3. Faith without works is dead. The first application, how you talk. That's chapter 3. It's not the only place, however, that James talks about the tongue. Just listen for a moment. You're you're welcome to follow along if you want. In James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, This you know, beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James one twenty six. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James two twelve. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. James four eleven. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. James 5 9. Do not complain, another application of our words. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And then James 5 12. Above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. It should be obvious that the way we speak and why it matters is critically important to James, and he lets us know in verse after verse after verse. But as we look specifically in these first 12 verses of chapter 3, he isolates the tongue. He talks about our speech. He emphasizes its important. And as we study this, we're going to discover together five areas of the tongue's profound influence. Five areas of the tongue's profound influence. The first is in verse one. The tongue tests our teachers. It tests our teachers. James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. Teacher of who and teacher about what? Well, it's a generic word that literally is applied most times in the Scripture to pastors, teachers, instructors of of theology. He just left uh, verse 26 of chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. So, I think he's speaking largely in reference to theological teachers. Now, before you think, whew, I'm glad that applies to Rick and the elders and the teachers and the Sunday school leaders, but not me. If you are talking to anyone about Scripture and about theology, you have assumed the role of an instructor. Parents fall into this category. Disciplers, care group leaders. Specifically, he's isolating those who are teachers in the church, the pastor teacher, those who are elders and leaders. This is a haunting reminder to me all of the time. How a teacher, even a discipler, uses his tongue is perhaps, perhaps the most telling thing about him or anyone who would speak. Why? <laughs> it's a dangerous profession when you, when you make your living talking. Proverbs 10, 19 says, Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs eleven twelve, 12, he who despises his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding keeps silent. Proverbs 17, 27, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is counted prudent. The point is simple. If you talk too much, you can't help but sin. How can that be? Well, it could be that the more you hear yourself talk, the more you like to hear yourself talk, thus moving you into pride. Or maybe it's the more that you talk, the less truthful you become because you run out of things to say and you start making things up. Or maybe it's that the more you talk, the more you wade into areas of which you should not be confident. James adds that those who teach have a stricter judgment. I I understand that. I I feel that. I I know that I as as a teacher will be accountable to the Lord for everything I say from this pulpit and everything I say, period. But notice before you feel a little relieved that it says those who are teachers will will, will incur a stricter judgment, stricter. All judgment is strict. It's just the teacher is the one who has a higher accountability because he's saying the things that God says. We all have a strict judgment based on what we say and how we say what we say. That's why it's important from this pulpit to be able to say what God says, all God says, and no more than what God says. Anyone who teaches in any role, from parent to care group leader, to discipler, to Sunday school teacher, to Bible study teacher, ought to live in fear of the Lord because of this coming accountability. As we train men at the Expositor Seminary, I want to be very careful that as we evaluate their lives, as you evaluate their lives, we're listening to what they say, listening to how they say what they say because that's an indication of what's going on in their heart. How important is the tongue? I want to take you to maybe an unexpected place to show you the value that the Lord puts on the tongue. Isaiah 6 is a passage with which almost every believer is familiar. It's the holy, holy, holy passage. But listen to how that application of the holiness of God finds its way into the life of Isaiah. In the king, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Foundations and the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah speaks and he says, Then I said, after seeing the holiness of God, this was his response. Woe is me. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. This is interesting. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues, and he touched, guess where? My mouth, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Isaiah confesses, and God affirms through this cherubim, that indeed the greatest expression of Isaiah's sinfulness was his speech, was his talking. He says the same thing of the people. Jesus will say the same thing in other words in just a moment. The tongue tests our teachers. Isaiah, to be the teacher of Israel, first needed to clean up his talking and his speaking. A stricter stricter judgment is incurred. A second area of the tongue's profound influence is in verse 2, the tongue measures our maturity. It measures our maturity. Verse 2. For we all, stop right there, James has now broadened the camera lens from talking just to teachers to the whole church. We all, from teachers, now all of us. We all stumble in many ways. (laughs) If anyone does not stumble in what he says... He's a perfect man, literally a mature man, able to bridle, put a bridle in his mouth, bridle the whole body as well. Notice there's a change in association from the tongue and the teacher to the tongue and we all. It's an affirmation that everyone stumbles, specifically in relation to our speech, our talking. The word perfect there is teleos. It, it means mature. It cannot mean moral perfection. Believe me, if anyone knew that you could not be morally perfect, it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who saw the only morally perfect man who ever lived. And this is the first time he will introduce the imagery of a bit in a horse's mouth, bridle. We'll come back to that in a moment in the next verse. The point he's making is simple how we use our tongue shows our spiritual maturity it reveals our lack of spiritual maturity possibly take a uh, take a 2 hour ride in the car with anyone believer unbeliever anyone turn the radio off and just talk You will be able to tell within those two hours very quickly and very keenly what's going on in their heart. If they love the Lord Jesus, if they're spiritually mature, if they don't, if their values are oriented around themselves, the heart is revealed by how we speak and what we say. James is not alone in this assessment. The Lord Jesus, his half-brother, had even stronger words. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, speaking to the Pharisees. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Some translations say, From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men speak, listen, every careless word that men speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified. And by your words, you shall be condemned. What is he saying there? Jesus is saying, by your words, you demonstrate whether or not you're saved. And by your words, you demonstrate whether you're a citizen of heaven or hell. Look back at James chapter one, the same thing. Verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious or pious or spiritually mature, yet does not, here's our same word, bridle, his tongue, but deceives his own heart, that bridle means to put controls over it, this man's religion is useless, it's worthless. The point is simple and the point is shocking. How we use our tongue reveals our spiritual state. It even reveals whether or not we're a Christian or not. How powerful is this little two-ounce muscle behind your teeth? Two ounces. Well, we find out next, it determines our direction. The tongue determines our direction. He picks up on that bridal illustration, that bit illustration in verse two, and now in verse three. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth, So that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the sailor, the pilot, desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire." James now chooses two primary illustrations with a third one at the end of verse 5 to show the size of the tongue and how small it is compared to the, direct, to the rest of our body but how influential it is. And he does so by choosing small and large comparisons. The first illustration is the horse's bridle. A horse, horses are incredibly powerful animals just full confession some people are afraid of snakes or spiders those were all okay with me growing up I was terrified of horses I just had this I thought every horse was mad at me and I think probably it was from when I was small I tried to feed a horse an apple and he thought my hand was the apple and it just freaked me out for the rest of my life I still don't like horses but I'm glad some of you do you can take 500 pounds and sit it on the back of a horse and it'll barely snort The same horse, though, unburdened, can run a sprint of a quarter mile in about 25 seconds. It's a half a ton of raw power. Yet, you can place an 85-pound girl on the back of a horse who knows what she's doing, and she can literally make that animal dance. Just think... The tiny bit in the horse's mouth, just a few inches long, can direct a half a ton of power and energy. And James's point is that's what it's like with that little two ounces behind your teeth and its influence on all of who you are. Second illustration is in that of a ship and a rudder. He observed the same phenomenon in ships. Small bit directs a massive horse. Small rudder can can change the course of a massive ship. The rudder doesn't have to be that long, just a few inches to a foot or so long, and it can change the course of an entire massive ocean-going vessel. The point is that of influence. Small is influential over bigger. There's a third illustration at the end of verse five. At the end of verse um, uh, six, rather. And that is, I'm sorry, verse five. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The problem of forest fires was the same then as it is now. You can take a small, little, tiny match or a very small, little flame on a twig and touch the right part of a forest and the whole forest is set on fire. These three illustrations work together. Something small can influence something greater. And James's point is the influence of your tongue can influence the entirety of not just your body, but of your life. It determines your direction. And what you say is the primary means of how you are perceived. You do know that, right? Most people think most of what they think about you most by what you say, by how you say it. It gets even darker in verse 6 the tongue ignites our iniquity, it ignites our sin, our iniquity. And the tongue is a fire. Up to this point, James's use of analogy has only been indirect by simile. One thing is like another. Now he moves to direct metaphor. The tongue is a fire. The very world of sin, the world of iniquity. What a statement the entire context of our sin can be contained in our mouths and what we say and how we say it. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. What a statement. What we say literally, literally defines who we are. Sets the direction of our lives. it's not just what we say, it's how we say what we say. And it's not just how we say what we say, sometimes it's what we don't say that could define us. It's the very world of sin, the world of iniquity. It's the point of entry for all of the world's greatest evils. And James is making the point that the tongue reveals our true spiritual state. Look at verse seven. Huh. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. That follows right after 4, there in the beginning of verse 7, the fact that the evil of our tongues is rooted in hell. It's demonic, it's devilish. It's sourced from hell and the devil himself. <laughs> Ever the illustrator. James now talks about taming animals. When we lived in Southern California. One of our favorite things to do was to go down from Los Angeles to San Diego to SeaWorld. I love SeaWorld, SeaWorld's amazing. Um, killer whales jump rope, porpoises race and play tag. Most amazing to me were the sea lions, the seals. They they played basketball. They gave high fives. They pushed their trainers in the water. They even answered questions with barks. It was all such a good show. Animals can be trained to do a lot of things. But no one has been able to tame the animal behind your teeth and that's the tongue. No one can tame the tongue, verse 8 says. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Can I just confess to you, I have seen alcoholics stop drinking and never touch a drink again. I've seen drug addicts stop cold turkey. I've witnessed people living in fornication stop sinning until they were married a long time later. I've seen God change people so instantly in so many wonderful ways, but you know what? I've never seen anyone get instant control over their mouths without struggling with that for the rest of their lives. And that's James's point. It's a restless evil. It's restless. It's always there kind of percolating and murmuring under the surface. Your mouth can't wait to talk about evil. Our mouths are evil waiting to happen. Full of deadly poison. How clear is that? You have an asp in your mouth. Deadly as a serpent's bite. Listen to this exact same imagery elsewhere. James knew his Old Testament Psalm 58 verse 1, do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No, in your heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent. Like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. This had to be in James' mind when he was writing this. Psalm 140, verse 1. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who devise evil in their hearts. They continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. And then Paul picks up that passage and quotes it in Romans 3 all have turned aside verse 12 together they have become useless there's no one who does good not even one their throats are an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving the poison of asps is under their lips What does this look like What does this look like Can I can I give you some suggestions for for contemplation What's the poison of the tongue? First of all, it's gossip. Saying something behind someone's back negatively that you would never say to their face. Or flattery. Flattery is the opposite. That's saying something to someone positive to their face that you would not find yourself saying behind their backs. Exaggeration overstating and understating, stretching the truth, contracting the truth. Criticism, which is basically elevating ourselves to the position of judge, elbowing God off the throne so that we can sit there. Complaining, which is the sin of the tongue against God himself. Complaining is confessing a dissatisfaction with God's plans and provisions for our lives. Lying John 8:44 When you lie, you prove yourself to be a son of your father the devil, who is the father of lies. And can I say this? Social media posts, Facebook and Twitter Listen, friends, God views your social media as the very words spoken by your lips, and He will hold you accountable for every post you've ever made. The tongue ignites our iniquity in that what we say defines our character by defining our words. You see why He calls it a deadly snake, untamable? Amazing influence of our tongues. And finally, the tongue compromises our confession. The tongue does or can compromise our confession. Verse 9. With it, the tongue. We bless our Father and our Lord and Father, and sometimes we do. Wasn't it wonderful to sing It Is Well With My Soul with the rest of the voices in this room just a few minutes ago? We were blessing our Father and our Lord. Our tongues have such potential. They can actually bless Almighty God, the infinite and uncreated Creator. That's power. That a human voice can bless God Bring him pleasure and blessing. With it, we bless the Lord and Father. I think he's speaking specifically of Jesus and God the Father there. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the image or likeness of God. He says it's contradictory. How can we say we praise God when we are so quick to curse and criticize and complain about those who've been made in his likeness. Now, footnote, that doesn't mean we don't correct. That doesn't mean we don't talk about people in a way that would be constructive to help them repent of sin. It does mean, though, that we don't bless and curse from the same mouth. He explains what he means in verse 10. from it... From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. And then look at this editorial comment. My brethren, brothers, sisters, these things ought not to be this way. How can we sing, it is well with my soul, and then go to lunch and chew on somebody and gossip and slander? Our tongues are capable of both great wickedness and great encouragement. In these closing verses, verses, James uses four illustrations to simply say, now now, now think about it. And he goes to nature. If nature is not able, is unable to, uh, to go against its creative functions, ought not our mouths be so full of kindness about others and praise about the Lord that that awful things don't have any room? Look at these illustrations. Does the fountain send forth from the same opening fresh and better water in Israel? There were two primary sources of water, rivers and streams, even springs, and then also um, they were called foul springs, which would be, somewhat vol- uh, the, the, attached to the volcanic structure and would spew out sulfur and water, and that water tasted like sulfur. It tasted like raw eggs, rotten eggs, rather. Let me ask you this. From the same mouth ought not come blessing and cursing, fresh water and foul water. If you take a nice, fresh, cold, I'm thirsty now, uh, glass of water, and you take a foul, sulfur-laden glass of water and you pour them into a third glass, does the pure water overpower the bad water? No, it's gonna taste bad. And that's his point. Don't let your mouths, don't let your speaking, don't let your tongues elbow out the true function of our speech, which should be to give praise to God and encouragement to others. Can a fig tree produce olives? No, it can't. A vine produce figs? No, it can't. Very obvious. And then he says, Can salt water produce fresh? I know what some of you are thinking, Wait, Rick. On the Atlantic and Pacific, there are saline plants that can convert salt water to fresh. Not in James' day! They, they they don't go together. Neither can salt water produce fresh. If you are out at sea, and this was a common occurrence for these 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 uh, these folks, if you're out at sea and you ran out of fresh water, and you were surrounded by water, you had no water. He says, think about it. This is against nature. So what do we walk away from this passage with? Wow, I got pretty convicted drawing up a little list. Number one, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. James 119, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You know, sometimes I think we ought to be counted as wise when we are in our hearts foolish by just being quiet. Washington Irving says this quote A sharp tongue is the only edged tool that gets sharper with constant use. He's right. Even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise, Proverbs 1728. Maybe we should just work on being quieter. Secondly, when you do speak, make it your aim to speak of people's sin and struggles to their faces and only their virtues behind their backs. There's a place to talk about another sin and that's to them, that's with them, that's to correct, that's to love, that's to admonish, that's to receive, all that's good. So when you talk about a person's sin, talk about it with them. When you talk about them behind their backs, only talk about their virtues. What kind of church would we have if we just did that? Thirdly, make your speech the first focus of your sanctification. Make your speech the first focus of your sanctification. Remember Isaiah? The first thing that the Lord corrected and healed and gave him uh, uh, repentance and sanctification for were his lips. The first thing that Isaiah confessed about the whole nation, we are a nation of unclean lips. Make that the source of your attempt to be sanctified. It's not just negative. On the positive side, Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up, for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear Listen, folks, you have no idea what encouragement does. Maybe you do because you've sensed it and felt it. I was a 10th grader. I wrestled in high school, and my wrestling coach, Lynn Goss, I was pretty discouraged about several things. And he sensed that something was not right with me, and he asked me to stay after practice. And he pulled me aside, everyone else had showered and gone home. And we talked for about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And he just encouraged me. He complimented me. He built me up. He let me know that I wasn't as worthless as I felt. I can look back to that conversation in that moment on that day and tell you even standing here right now what an encouraging impact it had on my life. Do you encourage one another? In your family, do you take the time to identify evidences of grace in your in your father, your mother, your siblings, your children, and say, I, can I... Can I talk to you about you for five minutes and tell you just some amazing demonstrations of God's grace in your life? Why don't we do that? We can today. Build them up. Give grace to those who hear. And fourthly, remember the power of your tongue, remember the sticks and stones break bones, but words desperately hurt people. Death and life truly are in the power of your words. The kind of repentance that we're talking about demands the work of God in our lives. Prayer, and here's a good prayer. Can can I give you just a practical application prayer that we we get straight from the psalmist? Psalm 141, verse three. Psalm 141, verse 3. Memorize it, pray it, put it on your refrigerator, talk about it as your family. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips which is another way of saying any time I open my mouth to talk, I want to remember who you are and that you're here and that you care. The Lord Jesus was James's half-brother who came and lived a perfect life for us instead of us, died the death we deserved was raised on the third day and offers us hope. Without that as our bedrock belief and foundation, we we can't do this. So if you're a Christian, apply this passage. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, in a little while when our service ends, our prayer room will be open. We would love to talk to you about what it means to believe the gospel, to commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ to have eternal salvation from this day forward, to have peace and contentment, to have perspective, and to not put all of your hope in this life alone. We can offer you that hope. We'd love to talk to you afterwards, if that's your heart.